0: Just stop it. The -the run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ Helms. And today we're talking to someone who has helped scores of entrepreneurs and disruptors take the reins of their industry and steer off the lame, tired path of the status quo and Uh, kick the dust up. Today's guest has a length of time disrupting of 30 plus years he's developed and launched over 3500 products and services helped develop and launch i don't know if you did all of that yeah, but i want to No it's always me all with that. a
1: team and it's always but i've been involved in over 3500 projects so, there you go you know. he's
0: the author of demand side sales we're talking to him today because he has superpower insight to the universal factors underlying all disruption huh. coming to us live from michigan President and CEO of the Rewired Group, Bob Mesta.
1: Good morning. Thank you. Thanks Good for morning.
0: Me. So, you know, you're a legend. Oh,
1: and yeah. I was like,
0: no. we were trying to figure out how are we going to introduce this guy and really do him justice? Okay. And we couldn't. <laughs> right. But you have worked with literally or come across literally thousands of entrepreneurs and disruptors.
1: Yeah, but this is, but this is my mentors that basically taught me how to disrupt. And so it's a combination of both mentors and practice that has enabled me to kind of become very, so good at it. Um, but what I would say is learning the the foundations of it from the right mentors is always the first, I think is the first step.
0: The first key. Okay, good. So you've yep. been called the disruptors mentor. Yeah, that's actually like <clears throat> excuse me that's actually like your alias right
1: Yeah yeah I, my, my I, I always tell my kids on my on my uh, gravestone I wanna, I want to be the greatest footnote ever. I just want to <laughs> be part of so many things that like I'm just like referenced in other places or being part of so many different things. I, I don't need to have that I invented this or did that. It's more the fact that I just I was able to help make progress in the world.
0: Got it. That's good greatest footnote ever. So tell me what is the most important ingredient? to disruption.
1: Uh, so part of it is to realize that there isn't one ingredient, but there's essential components to being uh, like, there's three, four, five things, but there's two essential things that have to be there to, for you to be able to disrupt. Okay. Um, okay. One, one is this whole notion of understanding the job or the, that people don't hire products that they buy They, they or they don't buy products, they hire them and that they're trying to make progress in their life. And so part of it is to realize like people actually want demand is actually where people want to disrupt their life, but they don't know how. And so part of this is being able to empathize with the struggling moments they have. And what are the things that are pushing them to change? Because we're creatures of habit. We don't change without some kind of energy from pushing us to say the old way doesn't work. Right. and And is
0: this the actual target audiences that need to change or is this the disruptor or all of the
1: above? So to become a disruptor, you need to disrupt people. And so part of this is to realize like, what, who are you going to disrupt and why is really comes from where it, and where it gets adopted is this notion of, of uh, being able to uh, help people with struggling moments. Got it. right. And so Apple disrupted the, the camera market, right? By going in and, and have, just asking the simple question of where do people wanna take pictures but can't, <laughs> right? So instead of trying to make better cameras, they made cameras that were better than nothing. And that's where they started. And so, so the others... they
0: made cameras based on where were people trying to, to take pictures and couldn't.
1: That's right. That, so it was based on the notion of cons- basically what we call non-consumption. And, and where do people want to do something, but they can't. And so think about, uh, I, I've worked with uh, Southern New Hampshire University, where it's like, how many people want to go back to school, but can't, right? That's So the first part is understanding the progress. The second part is then understanding basically how to actually serve the low end where you're just better than nothing. So almost all disruptors come from the low end and they are dismissed by the incumbents because they're just seen as, well, they're just toying in something else. But like, but like uh, as banks looked at PayPal or Square as, well, they're just a payment processor. All of a sudden now they're a bank. And they're gonna actually be bigger than most banks very soon. And so disruptors come in from the low end and they serve the underserved.
0: Yeah, I have never heard that before, but it is so very true. Right. They come in from the low end. Do you think disruptors know this? Yes. They come in, so instinctively they know it, maybe they can't articulate it, but they come in from the low end and they're really serving the underserved. Yes, absolutely. Well,
1: and, and here's the thing is, if you think about the first iPhone, right? It, it, it literally, it didn't have actually texting at all, right? The battery life was horrible on it, but it was better than carrying three devices because it replaced a PDA, a phone, and a, and a, and a, and a pager or, a, or a, a hotspot, Yeah. right? And so you started to realize the fact, and they were able to add things over time, but each innovation causes a new struggling moment that then you have to go solve. And so struggling moments are the key to being able to disrupt and build a new fortress or a moat around basically what you're doing.
0: And that's interesting that you say struggling moments are the key because I talk to a lot of disruptors Mm -hmm. and not as many as you (laughs) yet, but they have a struggling moment, but sometimes they seem very naive about all the struggling moments that are kind of come throughout the process. Do
1: you yeah. find that to be true? Yeah yeah so uh, mo- most most entrepreneurs there's there's what i would say there are two types of entrepreneurs that i see one is uh, who build something for themselves they struggle with something and they want they want something better for them and then it turns out that there's a lot of people who also have that same struggling moment so though th- those entrepreneurs tend to be very very you know to be as very successful in the early days because the fact is they they actually live and breathe the struggling moment so uh, intuitively that they get it. Um, And so entrepreneurs who build for themselves are are, uh, attuned to it or kind of aligned to it in one way or another. But the, the entrepreneurs who are trying to get scale, I'm trying to build something, you know, there's a problem out there and I'm building it for these other people to do this. The, they have, they always have the problem of they're trying, they listen to the customer and they try to put whatever the customer says, what they want. Right. But, two things is customers don't know what they want, right? They, can, they don't know the solution for sure. They can tell you a solution, but they don't know the real key is getting why they want that solution is what will that solution enable them to do? Because if I can actually understand what they're trying to do, I might be able to come up with 20 ways to do something as opposed to one, right? Um, the second part is that consumers and customers lie. And so they, they don't, and they don't lie on purpose. They lie because in some cases, they don't tell you the entire like lie by omission. Right? Or they lie because oh, they they I like that, and you'll say, well, why do you like that? I don't know. I just like that. Well, if it, if they can't articulate it, then at some point, it's hard for them to value. And so, part of this is to realize, like, you have to be able to understand where and and when people will value. So it's not just the target of who, but when, where, and why that actually go with being able to understand a struggling moment.
0: And this is. Um something that you talk about quite a bit. I think you have a book coming out, right?
1: Yeah. I have a a new book called learning to build is coming out uh, in January. Um, But it's, it's uh, January 2022. But I think, um, you know, I've been talking about this uh, again, I talk about different ways. I'm, I'm dyslexic. So one of my, one of my superpowers is that I, I, I'm able to ask a thousand questions, ask people a lot of questions to understand what's really, so I learned through questions. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I, I had to figure things out in a very different way. And so to me, that that's, that's, I'm trying to disrupt myself
0: <laughs> constantly, right? Constantly. So tell me about, so this is a little different take, right? Because you're the disruptors mentor, you see things beyond what the disruptors see right? Yep. You're asking the questions, uh, you know, when, where, why, what is the status quo of a disruptor? And, and why does he need a mentor? What does a mentor do to push him through to be able to scale?
1: Yeah. So I, I think, um, so there's, there's, there's a couple things. One is, is that, that the, the hardest part of being an entrepreneur, especially at the low end is that, there, first of all, there are a lot of people who say that you, you know, you should, everything should be better. Everything should be, you you need to make everything perfect before you launch. And the reality is that's never true. Right. And so part of this is to be able to actually know when almost like, what are the, what are the uh, complaints you're willing to live with in order to get people to start making progress? Mm. Right. And so part of this is making those, those kinds of trade-offs. And, and, and so, the hardest part as an entrepreneur is making trade-offs, right? Most of them try to make everything perfect. And if you really get to it as a mentor, what my job is to do is to really question people to say, like, do you need to do this? Which one is more important than another? If I do this first, is this going to actually have more impact uh, if I do that second? It's about helping them prioritize and see what I call as the natural priority of the work. And ultimately being able to speed up the way they develop, because most of the time people work on either what's the easiest or what's the, you know, what's what they think is the most important as opposed to what, how does the work actually unfold on itself. And so I can actually help people see that work in different ways and and talk about what we call not only imagined tasks, but the discovered tasks that they have, they have to leave what we call capacity for this discovered tasks that you have along the way. Most people build a plan when we're the stupidest. So Wait, I say that again.
0: Most people build a plan. What?
1: When they're the stupidest about what to do. <laughs> and then okay. management, management holds us accountable to the stupid plan we put together. And, and six weeks into a project, I might realize, oh, I should change this or I should have done that. And I actually can't change the plan. Right. And so part of this is an entrepreneur. You have to actually learn how to plan in a very, very different way, because at some point there is no roadmap. It's what are you working on now? And when you're done, what are you going to work on next? (laughs) Not what am I going to do in 2023?
0: So you're telling me that part of the status quo is they're planning in a vacuum of data, which makes them stupid and they plan incorrectly because of this
1: so so here's the thing is i want to say they're not they're not stupid this is this is this is, that that's not the right word the, the the word is that they're they're almost myopic or they're fo- so focused that they actually can't see the forest from the trees yeah and a lot of times they end up uh spending way much way too much time on things that don't actually add value on the demand side and so they're 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 almost like i can't move on until this is perfect and the reality is is like The rest of the system is not dependent on it. And so we actually hold up the development of other parts of it because we need to get this part perfect, right? And and you don't have to, there's a way in which to iterate around that.
0: Do you have an example of that?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm building some software right now with a gentleman by the name of Ryan Singer. We've been building it for about 12 months. Um, And we got to a point where we were, uh, one part of the process where we had to actually take a bunch of statements of what people say and uh, group them into what we call intent. And as we, as we went into it, we, we understood the, the process of how to do it. We've been doing it for a long time, but when we made it into software, it became way too cumbersome. And, and what happened was is we got it to work, but it was like, okay, this is a really heavy lift to do it this way. But what we did is instead of trying to hone and refine that piece, we went on and actually developed these other pieces to make sure the whole process worked and then we came back and knowing where the work was in these other places we could actually then refine this one step and we made it almost 10 times easier because of what we could see later as opposed to not st- stopping everything and saying like all right we got to fix this until we move on to the next thing and so it's that perspective to know how, how what are you going to learn along the way and what do you it's almost like you know what do you what what don't you know know versus what you know and and i always think of innovation as learning what we don't know versus trying to prove what i know
0: yes learning what you don't know and that's really hard to say sometimes
1: right well it's hard to frame most people and the other parts we're taught what i call hypothesis testing everybody gets a hypothesis well anybody can have a hypothesis and then what we do is we then spend the time to prove the hypothesis and what I would always say is I'm, I, I'm actually not smart enough about it to actually have a hypothesis. Let me go do some research so I can build, build hypothesis. I call it hypothesis building research versus hypothesis proving research. And that's what fuels a lot of these things to help us find where to be disruptive.
0: So we have this case of we don't know enough. There's omitted yep. data. You need yep. someone to pull back the curtain and pull yep. the strings, right? what is the next? So that seems to be like one of the first pitfalls
1: for a disruptor. Is it? Yep. Yep. It's one of the challenges, I think. Okay. Again, most people don't, most people think they can, they see a problem and they can solve it and they become myopic on it and they run it and then they hit the brick wall.
0: (laughs) And that happens most often than not.
1: That happens a lot.
0: That happens a lot. What's another one of the challenges that comes along after this?
1: Yeah. Um, So I, I, it's 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean?
1: And this is, this is where you get feature creep and you, 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 as you're building, you come up with new ideas of things you can add. And we keep, we keep building this thing wider and larger and larger and larger. And what happens is you, you, you end up, you know, you, you end up having to extend time and money because you haven't done that. And so what we do to, to kind of curb that is we actually fix time and then make the scope variable. So we only have six weeks. What can we do in six weeks that's most important and most productive for now? And so it's a way of working that forces us to what we call hammer scope, only the essential things we should be working on, as opposed to keep adding more and more things, right? And so a lot of times, both sales and marketing tend to ask if we just had this one feature, people would buy. And so every time we build a product, people add more and more features. And so we call it feature creep. And the reality is, is really good innovators know how to stay to the essential things and, and have the discipline to say no and when to, when to face things.
0: What's the scary part about the discipline to say no? Because I see feature creep a lot oh, yeah. in many companies, public companies, like private companies. Yeah. What, what is the scary part of that discipline?
1: So here's the thing is, is we, we all wanna please somebody, right? And so the thing is, is we feel if we actually say no, we're not pleasing somebody. So if somebody says they want this feature or we need to do it this way, you have to have the case of saying no. So the default for everybody is almost always yes, because it should be yes and. And the reality is it should be yes and and when, (laughs) right? Because we actually say yes when we should say yes, but later. So it's not no forever. It's no for now.
0: Right, and it seems like this earlier step, the first challenge of the planning, right, see, what yeah. would help on that discipline to say no or to say yes and win.
1: Well, here's the other the other aspect is most planning has been put in place from from an accounting perspective for cash flow purposes, right? And so that, like, you know, I'll, I'll have teams that come to me and say, like, well, what are we going to spend next November? I'm like, I have no idea. Well, we got to have a budget for it. I'm like, okay, and so ultimately, not knowing the work, what happens is people try to guess at the work, and then they build a budget around it. And the way you actually have to manage that money is very different than than if if you uh, if you if you know what you're doing. So most most budgeting comes from a known system and a known way in which to go build things, right? And so it's like I know the budget of a car, building a car or building a cell phone, but if I've never done it before, it's very hard to budget. And so it's more about constraints than it is about a plan. And so really planning becomes a constraining step, not necessarily a, a, a guessing step or a, a, you know, a crystal ball of the future step.
0: Is there a disruptive company that's done that really well?
1: Oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's several. So um, the one I can think of the best that, that most people would know and is public enough is uh, Intel. So Intel, in a lot of cases, uh, what happened is, is they were back when they did, uh, they went from memory to making CPUs. Um, and as they made the, the the Pentium processor or the 8086 or 8088, I guess, processor, what happened was, is that they went up market. And what happened is that there emerged a low end of the market in terms of uh, PCs that were like under a thousand dollars and they're there. CPUs were were very expensive, but very, they were state-of-the-art. But what they ended up realizing is that they could actually serve the low end of the market with the last year's version of the processor. And so they built something called the Cellularon processor. That was a there was the Pentium and the Cellularon. And the Cellularon was to go to schools and to all the people at the kind of the low end of the market that basically wanted a computer, but really couldn't get one. And so at the very early of the day, they took over the, uh, the processor market because not because they not only because they built great processes, but because they were able to go to the low end of the market. That
0: right. was super smart.
1: Yep. Uh, another example is uh, Intuit. Uh, Scott Cook at, um, at uh, Intuit basically realized that, you know, no, no small business wants to actually be an accountant. And so this is not about making great accounting software. This is about building accounting software that as a business owner, I can get paid. I can pay my bills. I can see what's going on. And you know, I don't have to hire somebody. And so for them, though, all the, if they went to the experts like the accountants, they'd tell them to build something completely different. They built it easy enough that I didn't have to hire somebody else. To run my accounting package. you're talking
0: about quickbooks right
1: exactly that's yeah. where i and so ultimately quickbooks they so where do people struggle and so this is a software that if you ask anybody most people will say they don't like it but they, it's not that they don't like quickbooks it's that they don't like accounting <laughs> and you're never going to get people to like accounting who are you know if i want to hire somebody new i'm going to hire a new painter i'm going to hire a new baker i'm not going to hire a bookkeeper and so part of this is to realize like at some point they're all, all right with some of the excuses or some of the, the complaints, but also to make it simple enough and make sure that they don't build too many features because they can do a whole bunch of stuff. And then as people struggled saying, oh, you know what? I got to write checks. It's like, fine, we'll print checks for you. They do 150, 200 million in print uh, check printing that they don't even want to do, but they do it because people struggle with it.
0: You know, that's the first time I've heard that version of QuickBooks because people do complain about QuickBooks. Oh all the yeah. Time. They,
1: they, they, there isn't anybody who, and, and now they're actually doing a really nice thing where back in the day when they did it, it was very hard to find somebody who could do your books and now they can do fractional help. Help me with this, help me with that. And so now with the gig economy, they're moving it from, yeah, you, we can buy the software, but you know what, even if you don't, now I can actually find people to come help you. So they don't have to come to your, come to your office or come. You know into your network and so all yep. of a sudden there's a whole bunch of other things the other thing you have to realize is that they're they're backward integrating into things like you know uh, they just bought mailchimp so they're trying to make the back office the things that you don't have to worry about so you can do the stuff you love to do
0: yeah that's brilliant i didn't know that they were buying right.
1: mailchimp yep
0: so when disruptors come to you are they generally at a point where hey hey i have this idea that i want to do or are they at a point where they're at their wit's end and they need uh, help or do you have both and what are the uh, yeah. that's one question and then what are the common denominators of the disruptors that come to you that you have to disrupt with them
1: yeah yeah um so the ones that have an idea and they they already have what they want to go build um i will yeah i usually provide advice but i can't help them they already have a momentum of where they want to go and at some point, I, you need to them to exhaust where they're going to go so they actually can change some behavior. So a lot of times I'll be an advisor to some of those people, but for the most part, uh, it's very hard to engage because it's more about they need to get what's out of their head first. They almost got to run out of that energy to then actually frame it a different way. Um, but there Is are people- Is this
0: because you change their mindset so like, like 180 degrees, like you really look at what's it's, going on that- they're not even seeing because they're so myopic
1: it's really yeah part of it is really because i'm just lazy i'm or i'm t- <laughs> more i'm more tired than lazy it's just like at some point in time it takes so much energy to f- to fight argue and convince that the energy to do that is it's actually e- you know i can actually probably go help four other companies who who are already at their wits end because they're ready to change to try to then try to convince somebody who thinks they already have the answer and they really uh, they just want to fight with me
0: you know that's very interesting that you say that because that's what happens in crisis management sometimes yeah. the guy has a problem so bad but he's not ready to do something about it yet that you have to wait until the problem becomes horrible that he's willing to change well, and it's almost heartbreaking
1: to to see so so it's what's interesting is this is this is, it's It's human behavior at some point in time. It's actually hard for me to value it when there really isn't a consequence yet. And so when the consequence is there, and if you actually have a plan and you know what you're gonna build and you know what it is, the hardest part is the fact is is like at some point, all all our conversation then is about a debate about a future state that nobody actually knows. And so to me, those are, those are almost futile discussions. I'd rather just have you go accelerate what you're going to try to go do. I'll give you more money to go do that and get there faster. So then we can pivot to the right thing. <laughs> it's what those people call a pivot move. Right. Right. But, but, yeah. but the, there's a, there's a second group of people who come with ideas, but they've actually, like, I like the serial entrepreneurs who've already kind of been through it once or twice. And they're kind of like, okay, I know that I like, I know what I don't know, and I need your help to figure that out. So those are the people that I'll usually engage. So the, the third and fourth kind of iteration entrepreneurs, and some of them were successful, some of them weren't, but if they've gone through the the rigor of uh, and, the, and they have the lumps, they're actually willing to listen a lot more and being able to actually help them a lot more. And then the, the third group is these people who are, they've tried a bunch, they've raised some money, and now they are kind of stuck and they... They have a, what I call a kick-ass half or they have a half-ass hole and they need a kick-ass half.
0: So you're, so they, they partner up with you and you get them that kick-ass half.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, I, what the other thing I'll do is I'll find people who have technology and they've launched something and it didn't really work and they have pulled it from the market. And then we'll take that product and, and, and look at it and figure out how to actually reposition it based on the demand, as opposed to what they, so the plan said it should be a hundred million dollar business. And, and when it turns out to be not a hundred million, they, they cancel it. And then we look at it and say, well, we we can make it like a $35 million business, but you're going to cut this and this, and this out and make margins this way. And all of a sudden we can recycle stuff that people innovated on that. They, they literally sit in the, in the shed and waiting, waiting for somebody to find them.
0: So you talk about this demand part a lot. Yeah. Right. And this is. Like, so when guys come to you at their wits end, or you have these serial entrepreneurs that come to you, they understand the importance of the demand side, because that's what most every disruptor I've talked to. It's the demand side that they're trying to get the Holy grail to,
1: right? That's right. Well, and, and this is where I think, especially I was, I was trained as an engineer and, and I was the, the lie I was told was build it and they will come.
0: It was a whole movie about that.
1: I understand that. And, 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 and it's a, it's a, it is a fictional movie.
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) And so, and
1: so the, and the, and the point is, is that, that for very early in my career, I would build stuff and I would actually ask people what they wanted. I'd build what they want. They say, oh yeah, that's not what I meant. Like what? And so I tried again. And and eventually I realized that even though I might've built something that they say, oh my God, I'd love this. And they say, yeah, but I don't know how to get rid of my other thing. You're like, Oh. And the other thing's not broken and it's not there. So when my other thing breaks, I'll use it, right? And you're like, it turns out that you have to actually find moments where people struggle, where they're willing to throw out the old thing to get the new thing. And so understanding demand, and so here's the other part is demand exists whether supply is there or not, because demand is about where people want to make progress, but they can't. And so like, so for example, uh, Paula Blank at SNHU was, you know, at some point, you know, how many people want to go back to college, but can't? Actually, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Right. As opposed to how do I build the best university? Right. And so his thing is is like you know I don't want to be Harvard. I want to go actually help people who basically want to go back to school, but but ha- struggle to do it. And I, and to be honest, I just got to be better than nothing because they are not going back to school now because they can't figure it out. And so understanding demand and understanding why people want to go back to school, understanding when they want to go back to school, understanding when not time of year, but like when. I hate my job and I really realized that I made a mistake and I want to actually move careers from being a nurse to being a a teacher. Right. Or I want to be, go from So there's, there's five different real uh, what we call jobs to be done of why people hire higher ed. And it's very helpful. We wrote a book called choosing college, Michael Horn and I, just to help people kind of frame, like, why in the world do you want to go back to school? So you can frame it in a way to realize what are the true measures of, like what are you really looking for and to help you see that progress more clearly
0: you know that's really very interesting and it, it brings me to this topic of what's currently going on in our economy and society there's so much disruption going on right yes and there's all of a sudden all this demand but it's been pent up but that's now right. it's really being expressed in many different industries yes. right what do you think is the catalyst to this i mean people say covid i'm no, not co- COVID, i don't think COVID. so
1: no, no i i think i think part of it is so for example i was doing interviews this week and one of the things i realized is you know um i talked with a person who was a a cook right and they worked at like you know uh you know uh, a chain and then they worked at a, a healthcare facility and and they're just a cook right and Their hours were like 4 p.m. till 2 a.m., right? They were very odd hours, very doing different things. And that's all they knew for so long. And what happened is when, when that all went down and they couldn't get enough work, they had to go find a different job or find a way to supplement. And they started to realize like, holy crap, I don't have to do, I can work here and work remotely and do this and make more money and not have somebody yell at me about my $14 burger. That's undercooked.
0: What did they, what did they start doing this cook?
1: uh, They ended up doing customer service. And, and it was one of those things where it was very interesting that, that all they really needed was, and the company provided them everything, but it was started out as something where they, they, they liked the team aspect of basically uh, the back of the kitchen, they do like uh, uh, kind of using their hands. And so part of it is, is uh, the thing that they're, they're uh, doing customer service around are um, let's say consumer products that, that they, that use your hands a lot. And so they're, they're really, really useful in terms of helping people understand those things. And so the, the point is, is that COVID has caused people to do two things. One is the jobs that they had when they got, uh, reduced or eliminated, it forced them to think outside the box of where they could go. So I, instead of trying to go to another place to cook, there wasn't enough places to cook. What else could I do? And as they see these other things, they realize how bad, for example, cooking was. Right. Right. And, and so, and so the, some of the work I'm doing right now is I've been researching for almost two years. What causes people to, to leave one company to go to another? And what progress are they truly trying to make in terms of what progress do, like, I believe that employees hire companies as much as companies hire employees. And I so agree what with are, you. what is the hiring criteria by which you go look at a new company? And the problem, there's two things. One is, I think almost 38% of the workforce would love to have a new job, but they actually don't know how to figure it out. And- they usually then only go find a job when the job the current job gets so bad, and then they just take the first next job they can find, which usually is just another version of their old job, just worse. Yeah,
0: and it's so just another stopgap, right?
1: That's right. So part of this is i um, building a process to help people take a step back and look at what they've done over the last four, five, six years. What are they really good at? What gives them energy? What sucks their energy? And enabling them to actually look at dimensions of what things are important to them. So when they look at different careers or look, look at different places to go, they can actually build a way in which to kind of say, this job's better for me than this one, because it has standard better hours. Though this one might be less pay, I actually have more of a life and I can be part of, part of my family again. Right. And you start to realize that they can make the trade-offs they need to make the progress to find a new job.
0: So COVID is sort of a catalyst in that particular aspect, because it did force people outside the box.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that in, in, in the, in the chemistry form, I think it is a catalyst. It's something that actually it's, it's not, it's not what caused people to do it, but it, it initiated people because of the other things wrapped around it. The, the disruption to the, to the, to the, the current system caused people to have new struggling moments and those new struggling moments then created opportunities for them to see progress in a new way. Right. I believe, I believe when, when we're not struggling enough, we're not actually growing fast enough. I agree with you on that feature and feature. And so there's periods where we should be struggling so we can actually reset ourselves, clean off the windshield and and see things new.
0: I have often read uh, many times from many different authors that people make the most progress in the most challenging environments or challenging times.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And, and to be honest, when people are in those moments and they call me for help, but the only thing I do is I hold up a mirror and say, why are you here? What is going on that you need to change? And what progress do you really want to make? Because most of the time they're, they're either stuck because they can't let go of the past or they actually don't know what they want in the future. And they don't know how to prototype what's possible. And so to be honest, I actually help people have more struggles but once they get past that, it's always the what I always say is it's the simplicity on the other side of complexity.
0: It's always simplicity, isn't it?
1: Yeah, but 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 there's there uh, trying to get there's there's uh, simplicity on the wrong side of complexity, which is making things too simple. There's uh, essential is what is on the other side of complexity. And that's the things that actually tell you where to say yes and where to say no.
0: And that's key. That's key. What advice would you give to these new disruptors that are understanding the demand that's out there and they don't really know where to start?
1: Um, I, I think dis- disruption, again, for me, always starts where somebody is struggling and wants to do something, but they can't. So the, fir- the first thing I, I always try to get uh, the entrepreneurs that I work with is to realize what are some of the struggles they have in their own lives, because it's almost like a micro skill. They have to be able to actually acknowledge it, see it, frame it, uh, mechanize it and, and understand what's causing it and to realize how they're going to solve it. Right. So, so yesterday I, I was talking to an entrepreneur and um, one of the examples, tell me something you bought in the last week. He goes, I bought a new snowblower. I said, what'd you buy? He goes, I bought an electric snowblower. I'm like, did you have one? Yep. Did it, the other one work? Yep. I'm like, so why'd you buy another snowblower? Did you get a bigger house? He goes, nope. And we started digging, digging, digging. And, and ultimately the, the notion was, is most of the time it was an old, he had an old gas one that had, um, what do you call it? Um, uh, dr- a drive on it. Right. And when he travels, he, he lives in Chicago. When he travels, he can't actually, you know, he can't do the snow. So his family has to do the snow. And what would happen is the last time he traveled is the snowblower was either uh, too small and they couldn't push it through it. So he had to come home and do it. And, and the reality is he was uh, like, Hey, it's on, it's on special. I got found out needs somebody else to to, 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 to buy the other one. And, uh, and oh, by the way, I have the batteries for it. And so you start to frame out what caused him to buy a new snowblower. And if I asked him, when I asked him before we started, he said, oh, it was a total impulse buy. I had no idea I was going to buy it, but yet it had been in his head for almost a year. And so it's this notion of taking the time to realize, like, just because you bought it on Black Friday doesn't mean that it, it, it was an impulse purchase. There's something there's that triggers you along the way, and there's some outcomes you're hoping for when you buy it. And there's certain things you won't be giving up on. You're not going to have two snowblowers. He goes, nope, if I couldn't get rid of the old one, I wasn't going to buy the new one. There's a trade-off. And so then I take them and have them reflect that into their customers and what what progress are their customers trying to make. Mm. But I feel that the more they can actually understand the the progress they're trying to make, they then can, and, and see it in themselves, they then can actually project it and help understand what other people are trying to do.
0: I've never actually heard that before, but everything is inner interconnected and interrelated, right? You have self, he's got a goal and idea. It's not totally separate from his
1: personal life. Well, but here, that's right. And here's the other part is what, what I, what I need to teach him to be is though is empathetic. He needs to disconnect his, like, I don't really care what snowblower he bought, right? I don't know anything about the snowblower. So I have to be completely unemotional, but I need to actually pull out the emotion of why he bought it. Cause he would just say it was a transaction. And when you get to it, it's like, I don't want my wife to not have the snow shovel. But the fact is, is I don't want to, if I travel, I don't want to have to worry about her. It's all emotional. It has nothing to do with throwing snow.
0: And the whole demand side that's not getting met is emotional.
1: It's, it builds emotion because of the frustration or the lack of, of, of progress.
0: So let's go back to the camera that people couldn't, there's places that they couldn't take pictures, yeah, right? That's right. And, so, what were those places?
1: Think, think of it this way: Do you remember uh, Do you remember the Motorola Razor? No. A Motorola Razor was a flip phone. It had a very it had a very small camera on it. Oh one yeah. Of the, one of the things you realize is that people were using the flip phone to take really crappy pictures because they wanted to remember that moment, and though they had a camera, they didn't have it with them. And so you started to realize where were all these moments that people had that, that they wanted to take a picture, but couldn't. And it would be like, well, we're at dinner. We, we should re- record dinner, but I don't have my camera. And it's kind of silly. Well, just take a picture with the, with the phone. And it was just better. It was, it was a memory of something. And as, it, a, and as it got better, people realized like those pictures, if we made them better, I'll value that. But in the beginning, people just was it had to be better than not having a picture or carrying my camera and so got it's knowing it. that insight early on right it's it's very similar like if you go back even to the 50s and you know about a transistor radio right in today's standard a transistor radio is a piece of crap it's horrible right but at the time radios were either in cars or in homes and the people who wanted to listen to basically the news or or something else were never in those places so where did you want to listen to the radio but you couldn't and eventually it got it so low that it got you know teenagers were able to listen to it and it created rock and roll. It created more radio stations. It created a whole channel of things. Like if you look at the growth of the radio network, it's all because of the, the, the disruption of the transistor radio.
0: This demand thing seems so very important. And it seems like the guys, the disruptors, they know it, they just need it pulled out of them or they don't know it and they need to go find it. But yeah. this seems like it is the common denominator. And if you don't have that, your disruption won't scale it won't
1: grow yep that's right and and the the other part is most dis- like successful disruptors they don't listen to the high end they don't listen to the the people who are the best of the market because what happens is is they they only want you to do more things for them and 9 times out of 10 that has nothing to do with the lower end of the market
0: yep that's absolutely right absolutely so bob ha- how did you get to have this particular insight? Like oh, just- tell me about your mentors. Tell me yeah. about you. How did you learn this particular or just develop this ability to see past what's really there? Um, sorry, or the appearance of what's yeah, really yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So
1: it's it's a, it's a little bit of a long story, but the thing is I was but my mom would say i was uh, uh I was born an engineer out of the womb I came an engineer I've been breaking things for i want to say f- at least fifty years if not fifty five years um, and to get out of trouble I literally figured out how to fix things very quickly and so I've always been kind of mechanical in nature but I also uh, you know very I would build lots of things like I built a skateboard ramp i you know rode my bike I, I built a parachute and jumped off the roof of the house I mean stupid things but like but by the time I was seven, I had three close head brain injuries where I can't read and I can't write. Was and this so, because you
0: were jumping off the house in parachutes? Yeah, or?
1: I had it was a lot of yeah you know, a lot of different stupid things. But yes, <laughs> um, and and what what my mom did is my mom was a teacher in Detroit and she realized that um, I got I got labeled to be in special ed, and so we moved school districts to help me basically figure out how to hack my way through school. So like she would teach me how to read. Like the first I remember. What, what I used to, my hack was is uh, somebody would read me a book and then I could memorize what they read. And so I could pretend to read the book, right? Wow. But if somebody gave me a book that I've never seen before, I couldn't read anything. And so my mom would look at me and she goes, all right, what do you see on this page? Like, if I, do you see the words? I'm like, well, I see this block. And she says, well, what do you see? I see, I see the spaces. She says, what? I said, space here, space there. I see the spaces between the words. First thing I see, she's like, okay, where's the biggest words? And I could I could point to the longest spaces. She goes, all right, we're going to circle them. And so we'd circle the five largest words in a paragraph. And then we'd sit down and she'd ask me, So, so what would these five, what are these five words? What do they mean? And why would they be together? And that's how I learned how to read. And so instead of trying to learn the regular way, I had to learn that way. And so the other compensating mechanism is then what I learned is I'm an auditory learner. So I actually ask questions many, many times, and I can actually figure out what people are trying to get to and 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 understand how to ask what's the next question. So most people have to have a list of questions to go from. Every question I ask is dependent on the previous answer. Right? And so that skill I developed by the time I was seven or eight. My mom taught me how to lip read. And so um, when I was 18 years old, I met uh, number number four up there, Dr. Deming um he was the gentleman who went to japan in 1948 and helped rebuild it he's the father of uh, lean production um six sigma tqm all that kind of stuff i had no idea who he was but i sat down next to him at um uh, i was at a friend's house and he happened to be there and i sat down next to him and i asked him like you know 52 questions in 22 minutes is what he told me and he just looked at <laughs> he me he was and counting
0: said, He was, I don't know what he he
1: was a statistician, but he was one of these guys who basically said, boy, you're a curious kid. How'd you like to help me uh, do some work at Ford? I'm like, sure. turns out he took me to Japan and I learned all these different methods and tools of how to take product development cycle time from 72 months to 36 months in the automotive business. And I was, I was really on the front lines doing all the methods and tools and processes to, to do that stuff. And so you know, I've been building products. I don't know. I think my first line was, uh, I built speakers when I was 12, sold them, you know, basically at, uh, at, uh, fairs and stuff like that. And from that, I've been building products all since, and then I've been attracted to all these different people who basically who are really good builders or disruptors and have been learning from them because I, I resonate with them.
0: So he was your first real mentor.
1: Um, so here's the, the besides your mom. Well, my mom, my mom was my first mentor. Dr. Deming was a mentor, but I really interacted with him very little. Like I I almost had like two years with him, and it would be, we would do some things together, but um, I didn't really have a, a, my best, my strongest mentor was with Dr. Taguchi who was number two up there and he, he, we spent almost six, seven years together and worked side by side. And then with clay, I was lucky enough to get four hours a quarter for almost 27 years with him where we would just sit and talk. And so uh deming would be almost the first but the as i as i found more mentors i i engage them very differently
0: and did you go out and always seek these mentors cuz the first mentor you found was just sort of like happenstance right
1: yeah so so the, the interesting i have a i'm working on a on a book right now called the the five lies i tell myself <laughs> right and it's like so one of one of the lies that and it's more i think manifested from my mom but it's like nothing is random everything is caused and so like when when like when you called like i don't say like well why did she call what does she want it's like the universe is telling me that we should be talking why should we be talking because to be honest i make it pretty hard to find me it's not easy right and and so when you find me you actually have to spend energy to get to me and so it's like what are you really like what are you what progress are you really trying to make and so to me with Clay, the craziest thing was is I asked Clay one I literally knocked on his door. Um, I had got an introduction from somebody. He was uh, his first year at Harvard. Um, I had never met him before. He's six nine, six ten, big guy. And I walked into him and said, look, I, I'm in Boston. I work uh, with these different companies here, but if there's anything I can ever do to help you, what is your research? What are you struggling with? And he literally sat back in his chair and he looked at me, and he goes, you have to realize I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before, and so I said, "Well, what can I do to help?" And he goes, "Well, what, what, what will I owe you?" I said, "Nothing." I said, "How can I help?" I said, "You're trying to do research. I'm in this area. What can we do?" And so basically, I kept every quarter. I would either bring in people or we'd we'd go off and do things. But I was never in the inner circle, but I was in the the second circle, and and always being able to. Learn from him and then also use, uh, uh, bring him things that, that I was, uh, so jobs was something I was using that I brought to him. And then disruption is something he was studying that I learned from him.
0: Was your early, um, I guess I want to say career, but your early foray into school when they put, you know, Oof. labels you and put you into special ed, did yeah. this, was this an impetus for you? Like always wanting to learn because they cut off, you no. know, your
1: no Your willingness think, um, to learn there no i just i felt um because like you I, proved I, them all wrong <laughs> yeah no but i think uh, this is the thing is this people people will say boy you're god you're really smart i'm like no the, the, i think the key is i'm actually really stupid and i can ask the questions to get smart fast <laughs> right and so most you're people actually try to, really curious that's exactly right and and to be honest i'm also forgetful so the combination of being forgetful and curious means that you're like my skill of being curious is, is, you know, I literally could have talked to you a month ago. We might've had a similar conversation, but the fact is like, at some point I will be as curious next time as I am this time, because and that's I can't the remember secret. that's part of the secret is, is it's not forgetting everything. The other part is having what I call kernels. Like as long as I've got three kernels, I can, I can remember just about everything. But if I don't have the three kernels, which is space, time, and face.
0: Space, time, and face.
1: Yeah. Where, when, and who. Yeah. So I have notebooks. So I have these notebooks. Let's see. Hold on. Do I have one here? Yeah, I have a notebook. All right. Yeah. This is from from 1990. I was in, you know, I can open it and I can tell you. So this, this page, I just opened a random page, right? This is from working with uh, 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 FAG, which is a, uh, um, a bearing company down in Stuttgart. And I was with Dr. Taguchi at the time. And we we're literally doing a sintering process. So like, I can literally turn to any page and tell you where we were. Because I'd have who, who was there with me. Because I usually write down at any moment who I was with, the date, and the place and that that then i that that's the kernel that pulls back out of my head
0: yeah that probably puts you in good stead so, what's one of the favorite product launches or service launches that you've done that's really disrupted
1: so commercially or for me personally either or so for me personally i think it was building houses i loved building houses we we took a lot of this thing and we ended up building almost like you know 2000 square feet for 129,000 we built a school in the middle of the, the area and you were able to change people's lives. And it was very, I mean, the problem is it's just so capital intensive and the money made by the capital was more than the work to build the homes, right? But the—but at the end of the day, it was so gratifying to build this kind of uh, uh, starter home business to, to just help people, you know, have a place to be where they're going to raise their family. And that was just very, very satisfying. And And a lot of it was, learning how to actually kind of optimize the cost of the house. So we could actually figure out people who didn't think they could move that we could help them move. Right. That one was, so I did that for four years. We took it from what a hundred homes a house to a hundred homes a year to almost 400 homes a year. Wow. A thousand homes in three, three and a half years.
0: And again, serving the underserved and finding the demand.
1: Yep. And finding the struggling moments. Right. Um, I think, um, trying to think what else so many, like so many, like the one, like the one, so clay always talks about the one that he asked me at one point, he said, what, what, uh, what innovation is going to get you into heaven? And the one that I always bring up is, uh, so back in 19, uh, I think it's yeah, 1987 when I was working with Deming, I had to drive, drive him around and we drive. And one of the things that was always interesting is how much anxiety I had driving into the gas station and fig- trying to figure out which side was the door for the filler cap on. So I could fill the car up <laughs> as I'm returning the car and Deming would be in the front seat. Come saying, this is a quality problem. We should do something about it. I literally was just like, I don't really care. Let's just get to the plane. Let's get home. And, uh, it turns out that, you know, he, he brought it up to my bosses. And so one of the things I worked on was, uh, In 1992, we launched it. It took quite a while to get this through, but it was like the little arrow on the gas tank that tells you which side the filler cap is on. That that helps you kind of just realize that you don't have to memorize it. You just have to look for it.
0: Okay, that is going to get you into heaven, That's
1: right. That's for sure. I make, I make no money on it. It was, it was. Again, I was part of a team that did it, but it was like it was. We prototyped it a different, many different times, and it was all this coordination thing. But in the end, it's like on every single car, everybody uses it. I don't really make any money on it, and there's just less people, you know, you know, having less gas bills and and more, you know, less accidents around the airports and gas stations.
0: It's pretty amazing. So, <laughs>
1: So uh, what do you do little, in
0: your off time? What are your crazy passions? Do you have any?
1: I paint. Um, I've, I've figured out a process to write. So I have a company called Scribe Media that that we uh, do, we, we frame books. Um, we talk about the progress people are trying to make when they read the book. And then um, we find struggling moments that uh, of where people buy books to put them in. And then I write books around it. So I have three books already. And I have, what? seven more coming and so does this help just,
0: people write books is this what scribe yeah, that, media so, does so
1: what it turns out to be is we spend uh, one two hour session just framing the book and then they actually find a writer for me and then what happens is they they um we do 10 two hour sessions and then they go off and write the book and then i do all the graphics so my other thing is i paint and i do graphics and i like to create artistic things um
0: are these some of your paintings in the background? Yeah,
1: no, yeah, the, these are. So this is some of my stuff in the background. I have, I have uh, like eight hundred and forty-seven paintings. At this, when I get to a thousand, I'm gonna kind of open an online uh, uh, gallery and just kind of start getting rid of some <laughs> of them. my. My wife is getting a little bit fed up, so which I can appreciate.
0: <laughs> okay, you're but an. I like, to, I like to do the I big. It. I
1: like to do the big ones like this. Yeah, right? that's the, so that's New York City uh flying in from a, it's, it's taken with a picture and then what i do is is um i digitize it and then i actually print it on a canvas and then i paint on the canvas
0: wow well on i love art time, so yeah i yeah. definitely love art that's cool how do you have time to do all this
1: um because well because i can't read i have to do like at night i i, I paint a lot at night to get me i have to i have to use all the energy in my brain before i can sleep and so I have to, I have to find hobbies like this to do that.
0: That's amazing. Okay. So where do people find you, Bob?
1: Uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Um, Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A. Um, you know, um, you're making
0: I'll, it easier for people to find you here now.
1: <laughs> I, I know, but, but let's be clear. You got to ask me a really good question to get me to answer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Okay, good. Okay. So can uh, but find but you I, I
1: accept connections because at some point when I have a new book or I have something coming out or I have a podcast, that's where you're going to find all my stuff. And it's it's easy to kind of follow what I'm doing because I put most of it there. Uh, Twitter, I'm at BMesta. mesta, um, and then you know uh, there's the dot uh, com is kind of the the name of the firm where we're very small. I've been around now twelve, I think twelve years. Um, me and my business partner Greg Engel, we've been doing it for we've been working together for almost seventeen years and. Um, we've, we've, we've built what four businesses together and, uh, we probably launched you know, a couple hundred products together. So,
0: and, uh, serial entrepreneurs, you're speaking from experience. So yes. those that want to come work with you, yes, you, you actually walk the talk.
1: Yes. So the, so to me, the first call that we're going to talk about is like, we're going to talk about the forces that like, what, what's pushing you to be here? Like why, why? Like my first question was, "How did you find me?" Right, and and why? And then you're gonna you got to tell asked me. asked me. That's right, and I'm like, <laughs> "How? Like, why?" And then it, and then it's like, "Okay, how can I help? What progress are you trying to make? What are you worried about?" And then what do we do? And then and part of it is then framing alternatives.
0: And I want the listeners to know when you say, "How can I help?" You actually really mean it. Oh yeah. Paying it forward is part of your mantra these days.
1: It, it is. It is. Yeah. I've I've been lucky enough to have the. These mentors and I've had these the four, but I've had many, many, many mentors, and they they're it's one of those things where what's so interesting is I've been trying to think about almost all the mentoring relationships I had have been very informal, and I'm wondering why why like how they form and how they work. So it's one of the one of the books that's one of the next ones that I'm working on as well as just how to actually understand the mentoring relationship and what it what it means to be the mentee and what it means to be the mentor and how do we actually understand the progress that people are trying to make from both sides.
0: Yeah, that would be a good book. I would love to read that. Now you have demand side sales, which I think our listeners should read. We've been talking about demand a lot in this whole disruption phase. And this would be the first book I would think for them to read, just to really understand that, right?
1: Well, so there's a couple of things. One is is most sales processes are set up to how we want to sell. And what I said is, no, you should set the sales process up based on how people want to buy.
0: Yeah, And it
1: seems very subtle, but it's actually a very big different set of languages. And so that's one of the reasons why I did this. The second is to realize that that when uh, uh, I, so I teach now at the, at the Kellogg School and it's one of the few schools I realized that they teach actually have sales classes at it. And I realized that most of the business schools in the country do not have a sales class in a business. Like imagine taking business, taking, going to business school and not learning sales. And if, and if I look at my first six startups, like all my time was actually spent learning how to sell. And, and you start to realize like selling is actually different. So this is a book that talks about how do people buy and how do we set up a sales process around it? And I built a class around it. And Craig Wortman is actually teaching and using this as his foundation, as his class at at Kellogg.
0: Well, I started reading it and I think for any disruptor to really understand this whole demand thing that you've been talking about, that's a key book for them to read. Yep. And then you have another one coming out called build value or building Uh, learning to build, learning to build. And this is really all about your time and experience with all these disruptors, right?
1: Well, yeah. So I took, I took some time and I said, like, if I took the the top hundred people that I've worked with, who are the disruptors, the innovators and put them in a corner and say, what, what are these, what are the skills that they really have that make them different from everybody else. And so I came back with uh, it's the five bedrock skills of innovators and entrepreneurs. And it's things like empathetic perspective. Uh, really good entrepreneurs can see things unemotionally from other people's perspective and see how, where the conflicts are going to be, where the synergies are going to be. They see things from the macro perspective. They can see through time. They're, they have this ability to kind of fly around and see things. And, and, it's, it's, it, and the only place you really learn those kinds of things is in the theater, right? You learn to play a role of somebody else. Yeah. And so part of this is teaching them that thing. Another one is uh, um, uncovering demand. Another one is causal structures. They have a way of seeing how the world works. Uh, another one's about trade-offs and managing trade-offs. Another one's about prototyping. And so it's these five skills that when kind of put together uh, that I learned and that I would say that, that I see in other people as well it's the foundational pieces that enabled me to go from being a baggage handler to being an innovator.
0: And when is this book
1: coming out? January. So January is the target. I, I have to. I've, so the book has been done since I want to say almost August, but I'm working on the graphics and I'm a little uh, I just need to let the graphics go at this point. So,
0: okay. So for all of our listeners, listen to demand side sales first. That's my recommend. I mean, read that first. That's my recommendation. And then follow Bob on Twitter and LinkedIn to find out when learning to build is released.
1: That's right. That's good.
0: And get that one, Bob. Thank you so much. Like I I could talk to you for another hour and learn so so many insights.
1: Have a great rest of your day. Say that again. Have a great rest of your day. Oh,
0: you have a great rest of your day too. Thanks everybody for listening to the Disruption to Interruption podcast where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Johto PR and the user.